Lord, we give this time to you, God, and we ask for your spirit to guide us in your truth, to encourage us, to convict us, to challenge us, uh, Lord. But most importantly, we'd walk away from here knowing how good of a father you are, that you are perfect. You're the only perfect father, Lord, and I pray uh, that there would be that reminder of all your goodness, all the things that you've done for us, all the times you've bailed us out and had mercy and grace on us and pursued us constantly, even when we didn't deserve it. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, the fathers would be blessed, but most importantly, God the Father, you would be blessed uh, through the message today and through the way we choose to, to live out our lives. Lord, so please bless the time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we obviously celebrate our fathers in the role of fatherhood. Now, when we look at our society today, not that it wasn't important back when, but the role of fatherhood is absolutely crucial. When you look at the issues that are going on in society today, we see how pressing it is for fathers to be a part, to step up, to operate in the role that God has given them to operate in. And we're going to see some of these examples from the text. We're going to see specifically the type of father we all need. And this is the title of the teaching the type of father we all need. Now, we know the type of father that we all need, first and foremost, is God the Father. And He's the only perfect father. No father in here will be exactly like God the Father. We all fall short of the standard, not that God just shows for us, but also the standard that He set for each and every one of us. But he gives us enough in his word, both good examples and bad examples, to help us understand what it means to be a father in the Lord's eyes. Before we get into the text, I want to share with you some statistics. Okay, I don't want to bore you with numbers, but this is pretty fascinating. Uh, when we look at the world and where it's out today, specifically America, I found some information on various websites, the main one being uh, the Fatherless Generation WordPress. Okay, What we find is that 33% of Americans grow up without a father in the home. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers, so rehabs, come from fatherless homes. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. But there are also some statistics that I found that aren't just about fatherless homes, but about fathers being in the home and not having the proper relationship with their children, not fulfilling the role that they're called to fulfill. We see 
on the positive side, children with fathers who are involved, not just present, but actually involved. Those children are 40% less likely to repeat a grade in grade school. Children with fathers who are involved are 70% less likely to drop out of school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to get A's in school. We see even the role that fatherhood plays in education. But it's not just education. It's also various things, including, as we previously mentioned, drug and alcohol abuse. It says this. It's the last one I'll read for you. They did a study at Columbia University and they found that children living in a two parent household. So the father is there, but they have a poor relationship with their father. Okay, the father's present, but he's not really present. Sixty eight percent more likely to smoke, drink or do drugs compared to all other teens that have a two parent household. As we can see, not just in the Bible, but even in real life. Statistics, history show us that the role of a father is absolutely crucial. The society as a whole is better when fathers are present. But spiritually speaking, as we mentioned, even through the statistics, it's not enough for fathers to just be present. There's a way that they need to be present. And we're going to take a look in the Word and try to figure out what that way is. Sadly, what we're going to find is that if you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there are many more bad examples of fatherhood than there are good examples of fatherhood. So we are going to look at some bad examples, but we're also going to look at some good examples. And we'll purpose to understand as a father, if you are a father, what it really means to be a father according to God's eyes, but also recognizing that God is our perfect father. We know that one of the primary roles of fatherhood is to be what in the household? It's to be the spiritual leader. Yet sadly, so many give in to spiritual complacency and they don't step up into that role. This is point number one, spiritual complacency versus spiritual leadership. Spiritual complacency versus spiritual leadership. Now we're going to start with the very first father on the earth. Who was that? It was Adam, right? Adam was the first father. And when we see the fall of man, when sin entered into the world, so often we think, ah, Eve, she got tempted by Satan, and, and, and Adam just followed in her footsteps. But the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that Adam was right there. He was with Eve when Eve was tempted by the serpent. Adam knew the word of God and he knew Eve was being tempted to defy the word of God and he didn't speak up. He didn't stand up. The fall of man happened for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons it happened was because of man, the first man, giving into spiritual complacency, not stepping up and fulfilling that role that he was called to fulfill. But spiritual complacency, it doesn't just lead us to a place where we don't seek God. 
spiritual complacency leads us to a place eventually where we seek all these other things other than God. It starts with just not walking in the word, not standing up for righteousness. And before we know it, we get in all kinds of things that we shouldn't be getting involved in. We're going to look at an example in 2 Kings chapter 21. This may be the worst example of a father in the whole Bible. His name's Manasseh. We see the idolatry of Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21 verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hethzibah and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord has cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Manasseh, his spiritual complacency, started with him not seeking God. And all of a sudden... He's literally worshiping demons. All the hosts of heaven, that's what the text is referring to. He's invited other things into his life, and those things have hindered his relationship with God. In fact, his relationship with God, according to the text, is non-existent. Look at how this plays itself out in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 4. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. It's literally worshiping idols in the house of God. Verse 5, And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he gave his son, he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. This man, Manasseh, he literally sacrificed his son to a demon. He sacrificed his son to an idol. Now we can look at that and go, yeah, I might not be the best best father, but I'm not sacrificing my children to demons. Maybe it's not that extreme. But sometimes our idolatry can cause similar consequences. See, Manasseh, he was supposed to take care of his children. He was supposed to take care of his son. And he ended up putting his idols before his children. You ever fall into a place, fathers, that you're putting things before your family? The Bible teaches us that the only thing that we're supposed to put before our family is our relationship with the Lord. When we start raising up our jobs, our careers, our image, our finances, our hobbies, whatever the case may be, when we start making those a priority over our families, we're committing idolatry. And we're doing something very similar to what Manasseh did. He put his idols before his family. Look what happens. Second Kings chapter 21, verse 7. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I've put my name, I will put my name forever. 
and will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no, no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. It's not that Manasseh didn't know the word. He knew the word enough to know that what he was doing was horrendous. It was completely against God's heart. But despite the warnings, he continued on in his idolatrous lifestyle. Now, his idolatrous lifestyle, it didn't just affect him. Look what it says in verse 9. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Manasseh was leading his people away from the Lord. He was leading his family as well as the whole nation of Israel. See, who we worship, what we do, what we say, the priorities that we put in place in our lives, all those things rub off on our family. They always rub off on the people around us. The family will all often follow what they see their father doing, whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. In this text, we see a rather extreme example of the consequences of spiritual complacency. It ultimately leads to idolatry, which leads to destruction. It all starts when I decide that I don't want to seek God anymore. I would rather have other things in my life. I would rather spend my time elsewhere. And we can minimize that. What's devotion time? Like, what do I really need to do that? Do I really need to pray to God? Do I really need to get up and seek the Lord? Do I really need to come to church? Do I really need to do any of these things? No, you don't need to, but you should want to. And the consequences of not wanting to and allowing that desire to put you in a place where you are actually seeking the Lord for the love you have for Him and the love He has for you. If that's not happening, spiritual complacency will always lead to a place of idolatry. We find a bad example in Manasseh, but we see a relatively good example in the person of Elkanah. It's First Samuel chapter 1. Elkanah was the father of Samuel. Now, Elkanah wasn't a perfect man. In fact, he had two wives. But we see this character quality of Elkanah that I think is absolutely commendable. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, it says, This man, speaking of Elkanah, Samuel's dad, went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the priest of the Lord, were there. Elkanah, throughout this chapter, we see his consistent pursuit of the Lord. He constantly pursued God. He worshipped the Lord. He desired a relationship with the Lord. And this is so important for us, all of us really, but especially fathers, that there's consistency in our pursuit of God. Why? When there's a lack of consistency in our pursuit of God, there's going to be a lack of stability in our household. Guaranteed. If we're inconsistent, 
The family's going to follow the father. They're going to be inconsistent. Well, dad doesn't ever wake up and get in the word. I don't ever see dad praying. I don't ever see him seeking the Lord. He never wants to go to church. Why should I? And we know this is what kids do. That's why it's so important for us, especially as fathers. Most important thing of all is to seek the Lord. We can't be even a decent father. And we know no one's good but God. But we can't even be a decent father if we're not receiving the love from the Heavenly Father. It all starts there. I cannot love my family in the way that they need to be loved if I'm not being loved in the way that I need to be loved. And if I'm not pursuing that love and seeking it out. Elkanah, back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 21. Jump all the way there. It says, now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. See that? It wasn't just Elkanah going up to worship the Lord. He brought his whole household. Elkanah wasn't just a man that sought the Lord. He was a man that led his people to the feet of Yahweh. That's who he was and that's who we as fathers are called to be. See, living in Elkanah's home, it meant you're going to make time for Yahweh. That's what it meant. You live under Elkanah's roof, you're going to make time for the Lord our God. And it's so important for us as fathers that we establish that in the home, not just our pursuit of God, but setting our children up for success that they can pursue God as well. And that's how we lead them. So I want you to ask yourself, as I ask myself, How are you leading, if you're a father, your family spiritually? Uh, Are you making time to pray together? Are you making time to get in the Word together? Because it's so crucial. And I was challenged by this a a month or so ago um, to to switch things up and start doing a little devotion time uh, with my family uh, before uh, I go about the day. I consistently do my devotions, uh, but sometimes I don't always share what the Lord's speaking to me to them. And Jude, he just turned one. He doesn't really understand what I'm saying, but I'm making it a point to lead him spiritually. Now, I'll admit, sometimes I'm not consistent with it. I don't do it every single day, and I'm challenged through this text to do it more often. But this is my philosophy with it. If I can establish this as a spiritual discipline, not just for myself, but also for my family, even if Jude doesn't get anything out of what I'm saying. And I'll read him the Bible. I know he doesn't get it, you know, but but one day maybe he will. If I can establish this with him at an early age, guess what? When he turns four and he turns five and he turns six and he's able to read for himself and he's able to ask these questions, I already established the spiritual discipline. He's used to being led toward the Lord because I've been doing it since he was a baby. I've been reading to him since he was first born, literally. It's not always about what your family gets out of that time period. A lot of it's about us just playing the role that we're called to play, being that spiritual leader, That's the type of man that Elkanah was. Now, as we step into that role, in purpose to be the spiritual leaders that God has called us to be, 
It doesn't mean all the issues of fatherhood are just going to go away. Okay, If you're a great spiritual leader, your kids are going to be perfect. That's not in the Bible. You're never going to find that anywhere. We know even if we're trying to step up men to play that role, a lot of the responsibility is left for the children, whether or not they want Jesus or not. We can't force anyone into a relationship with Jesus. And even if they do want Jesus... There are still going to be issues. There are still going to be shortcomings. But we see in the word that there's a proper way to deal with these shortcomings, specifically when our children fall short. It's point number two. Overly lenient versus properly disciplined. Overly lenient versus properly disciplined. So often... Men tend to fall on one end of the spectrum or another. Either they brush everything under the rug or they're overly disciplined and they're overly critical, which we'll get into in the next point. But there is a balance. We see on the negative end, David, the man after God's own heart, he didn't strike this balance very well. In fact, we rarely ever see him discipline his children at all. He let him get away with all kinds of stuff. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, this stuff will be fresh to you. If you haven't, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Give you a little backdrop. Now Amnon, one of David's sons, had a thing for his half-sister Tamar. Okay, And he ended up raping her. David gets upset. But David, even though he's upset, he's not going to do anything about it. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21. But when David, King David heard that his one son raped the half-sister, of all these things, he was very angry. Ends there. He was just angry. It was just an emotion. But it didn't turn into action. David let his son get away with rape. He's going to let another son get away with murder. We see one of David's primary flaws is that he was overly lenient. He just brushed problems under the rug. He never dealt with the issues that were going on in his family life. He didn't discipline his kids when they needed to be disciplined. The Bible calls us to discipline our children. In fact, it says in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 20, 13 verse 24, I'll read it for you. Proverbs 13 24, it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It says if we're not willing to discipline our children, that shows that we hate them. That's crazy, but it's true. We see God the Father. He disciplines the sons and daughters whom he loves. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that if God doesn't discipline you, then you're illegitimate children. He disciplines us as we need discipline. David didn't discipline his sons, but he didn't learn this from God. We see God absolutely disciplines David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10 Samuel, sorry, David, if you recall, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he had her husband Uriah killed. So he thought he did this thing in secret. No one knew about it, but God knew about it. He reveals it to the prophet Nathan and he basically says, you're not going to get away with this. 
So God speaking through the prophet Nathan says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because of you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Because of David's sin, God chose to discipline him. And he says, there's going to be division among your household. But that's not the only thing that he did. Jump to verse 18. It says, then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. Literally, God allowed David's child from Bathsheba to die. And we look at that. If you study it, we've been talking about this on Wednesday. Because of David's atrocious sins, he's going to lose four sons. He's going to lose four sons because of what he did. That's crazy. When we look at that, when I look at that, I go, man, God, don't you think that's a little harsh? Don't you think that's a little over the top? Yeah, we know you discipline the sons you love, but but that is just horrific. God knew what David needed. He knew the type of discipline that David needed. And we see that this discipline, though it was tragic, it was successful. Guess what we don't see in the rest of David's life? We don't see him commit adultery. We don't see him commit murder. God knew what it took to get the message across to David. Now, as we look at discipline, we got to ask ourselves the question, right? Where does mercy and grace come into the picture with discipline? right? Notice that I said overly lenient. I didn't just say lenient because there's a time to be lenient and there's a time to instill discipline. There's a time to give mercy and grace. There's a time to chasten the one that we loved. The only way we're going to know what time it is, is if we're seeking God for wisdom. Because it's not just like, this is always the answer. The answer is Depend on the individual. Depend on the child. It depends on the circumstance. God, as we look at his example, he doesn't treat every one of us the same. He doesn't treat maybe you the way that he treats me, though he loves all of us equally. He loves us all the same. But he knows we're each wired differently and we're going to respond to different things in a different way. He also knows each circumstance is different. And you know, sometimes we need mercy and grace and sometimes we need to be disciplined. And though he is a father who's merciful and gracious, he's also a father who is just. As we look at that example from God and we purpose to imitate him, we recognize, God, the only way I'm going to know what to do in each situation is if I'm seeking you. And the Bible promises us that if we seek God for wisdom, he'll give it to us. Now, as we mentioned, the father disciplines the son or daughter that he loves. But as I also mentioned, sometimes fathers can fall on one end of the spectrum or another. The father can become this disciplinarian that's like a dictator almost, this authoritarian. Sometimes, no worries. And when we fall into that end of the spectrum, it can turn into this cycle of being excessively critical with our children. Yes, 
Children need constructive criticism, but they also need encouragement. That's point number three. Excessively critical versus encouraging. Excessively critical versus encouraging. Now, I want to look at an example real quick. Not from David's father, but from his brother. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, just before David goes and kills Goliath to save the nation of Israel, David comes on the scene trying to find out what's going on, how he can help, and look at how Eliab, David's brother, responds to him. Verse 28, Now Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. Eliab is being overly critical. He doesn't know what's in David's heart. We see what was in David's heart. He was just trying to please God and save the people of God. But Eliab doesn't see him. As this type of savior. He certainly doesn't see him as a future king. He sees him as the little runt. The little brother. That's good for nothing. All he can do is watch sheep. He can't do anything for anyone. He doesn't belong to be surrounded by the men of Israel. He looks down upon David. And he lets David know about it. I'll tell you. Most of the issues that are brought to my attention. The majority. I would even give it. I would say over 88% as far as counseling sessions and things like that. The issues that are brought to my attention almost always, not every time, are deeply rooted in that individual's relationship with their father. Not their mother, their relationship with their father. Not every time, but most of the time. And you know what I hear more than anything else from people that are trying to figure this thing out? My dad was overly critical I didn't feel accepted by him. I felt rejected. I I felt like I could never please him, that I was never good enough. I hear this all the time, and it's so sad. This is not the way that God the Father bothers his children. He's not excessively critical. In fact, we see that God the Father is super encouraging. And Judges chapter 6, this is the beginning of the story of Gideon. And Judges chapter 6, we see verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. We're going to see... That Gideon's confidence isn't very high, and we'll talk about it in just a second. But look at how the angel of the Lord, okay? This is a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Christ incarnate, okay? This is God, all right? It is Yahweh. He comes, it's not just any ordinary angel. He comes to Gideon, and he tells him what he sees in him. You mighty man of valor. Even if you don't see this in yourself, this is what I see in you, Gideon. This is who I see you to be. This is who I know you can become. This is how God the Father sees us. We see something similar with Jesus Christ the Son. 
You remember that first encounter that he has with Peter in John chapter 1 verse 42. He says, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. You are Simon. You are prideful. You are outspoken. You are not dependable. But you're going to be Cephas. You're going to be the rock. I see who you are, but I see your potential. I see who you can become. And who I see you to become is greater than you could ever imagine. It's how God the Father sees us. He sees us with the potential that we have. If we stand next to Him. If we grow in our relationship with Him. And this is exactly, as fathers, what we're called to do to see the potential in our children and encourage them to reach that potential. Not always beating them up and beating them down, but help them recognize that you see them in an even greater light than they see themselves. Judges chapter 6. Verse 13, look at how Gideon responds. Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Gideon is discouraged. He's fearful. Look what happens, verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Gideon, in other words, says, I don't see myself as a mighty man of valor. I don't know who you're talking about. You're looking somewhere else because that isn't me. He says, I'm the weakest tribe, the weakest one in my clan. I don't see things how you see things. But God continues to encourage him. And he says, no, no, no. I see who you are, you mighty man of valor. Go in your might and you're going to be victorious. Again, he sees the potential in Gideon. God the Father, when he looks at his children, sons and daughters, he says, they got potential. I can use them to change the world. I can use them to make a difference. I can use them to grant victories to the kingdom of God. This is how God the Father encourages us. He says, you can be victorious with me. Without me, you ain't doing much. But with me, you're a mighty man. You're a mighty woman of valor. With me, you can reach your potential. This is the type of father that I want to be. A father that constantly encourages my son with the little things, with the big things. I'm not talking about babying him. I'm talking about helping him see what I see in him. The potential, not just that I see in him, but the potential that God sees in him. And encouraging him to reach all that the Lord has called him to reach. See, when we fall on the former being excessively critical. How does that make children feel? It makes them feel rejected. But when we're encouraging our kids, especially as fathers, they feel accepted. It's the fourth and final point. 
Rejecting versus accepting. Rejecting versus accepting. One of the worst things anyone can ever feel is being rejected by their father. And we see this once again in the life of David with his son Absalom in Second Samuel chapter 14 to catch you up to the story. After Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom had Amnon killed. So one son ended up killing the other son because he raped the sister. And after he killed Amnon, he was basically banished from the kingdom of Israel. So Joab realizes that Absalom's a threat to Israel. He also realizes the heartbreak that this is calling, causing David. And he purposes to reconcile these two, Absalom and David. So, we pick it up in the text in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24. And the king said, it's King David, let him, that's Absalom, return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So at this point, Absalom has been banished from the kingdom for three years, hasn't seen his father, hasn't talked to his father, has no relationship with his father at all. And now David says, I'll let him back in the kingdom of Israel, but I want nothing to do with him. I don't even want to see him. This continues on for two more years. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. So now it's been a total of five years since David has even seen his son. He's been living around him, but he will not let him see him. He wants no relationship with Absalom. Now Absalom obviously murdered Amnon. But part of that was because David didn't pursue justice for the daughter that was raped. So a lot of this falls on David. Not to mention the curse. But I want us to empathize with Absalom for a second. Think about what he's going through. Imagine you do something and your child, maybe some of you are experiencing this. You do something and your father will not talk to you for five years. He'll let you back in the same city as him, but he will not talk to you. He will not see you. He wants nothing to do with you. That's rejection to a T. But this is also hypocrisy on David's part. Why? Because this is not how God responded to his son David. When David, after he committed adultery, and then he had Uriah and a bunch of other people killed to cover up his sin, what did God do? He did not banish him from the kingdom. He did not reject him. He accepted him. Not only did he accept him, he pursued him. He went after David. It wasn't David going back after God. God went after David. He addressed his sin. He disciplined him. But he also brought him back in with open arms. We see perhaps the best example in the scripture of an accepting father in Luke chapter 15. You know the story. It's the story of the prodigal son. Just for a fresh little reminder, if you recall... The son, 
He wanted his inheritance early. Basically what he's saying, God, I don't really care about you, Father. I don't really want a relationship with you, but I want what you can give me. And I want your finances. And I want your support materially. But I don't want you spiritually. I don't want you emotionally. I don't want any kind of relationship with you. I just want your blessings. Well, we see this man ends up squandering his entire inheritance in a very short while. But this leads him to a place of surrender. A place of recognizing the error of his ways. It's Luke chapter 15, verse 18. This is the prodigal son. He says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's playing this out in his mind. When I go back, this is what I'm going to say. I recognize that because of my behavior... I'm not worthy to even be called a son. I'm not worthy to be called a child of God. I recognize because the things that I've done, I'm not even worthy to serve him. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. So the son is thinking that the father is going to respond to him and say, yeah, I agree with you. You're not worthy to be a son, but I'll let you back in the house. I'll let you back in as a servant. That's not what happens. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father runs to the son with open arms. Despite the fact that the son thought he was going to get rejected, the father accepted him. The father embraced him. The father loved on him. The son based on the law, deserved to be stoned to death. He literally deserved to be killed. He's a rebellious son. But God, He didn't give him what He deserved. God the Father, He gave him mercy. He forgave him of his sins. But not only that, in Luke chapter 15, picking it up in verse 21, it says, And the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Not only did the prodigal gun, the son get mercy, he also received grace from his father. He says, man, I'm just happy that you're back. Let's bring out the fatted calf. Let's give him the ring. He's a co-heir with me. Let's give him the robe. All these uh, items have significance. But the point is that the father, he received his prodigal son just because the son desired to come back to the father. And that's the way it always goes with God the Father. If we choose to come back to Him, even if we squandered all His blessings, if we choose to come back to Him, we can rest assured that He's going to be merciful, that He's going to be gracious. That doesn't mean that there won't be discipline along the way. There might be. But we know that He's going to accept us. He's going to embrace us with love.
Absalom was rejected by his father. But God shows us that he's not a father who rejects us. He's a father who accepts us. He's a good father. He's a perfect father. He's a loving father. And you know what he tells us? Through Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. He's a good, perfect father, the only one. But he says, we're called to imitate our good father. We're called to walk in love as he walks in love. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect for your father in heaven is perfect. Are we ever going to attain perfection? Not in this life. But it's not about attaining it. It's about pursuing it. And as we pursue God, we'll get closer and closer to that place of perfection. He gives us a perfect example of what a father is supposed to be. The only perfect example in the whole Bible. But we have a choice, fathers, how we respond to that. Do we look to that example and purpose to imitate him as dear children? Or do we look at that example and simply say, it's unattainable, I'm not even going to try. As we go about our day, It is a day to celebrate our earthly fathers and recognize all that they've done for us. But even more importantly, we celebrate our heavenly father. All the times he's bailed us out. All the times that we've been prodigals, we came back, he received us with open arms. All the times that he accepted us and loved on us, even when we didn't deserve it. All the times that he's been there for us, even when we didn't recognize it. He's a good father. He's a perfect father. And he deserves our gratefulness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the only perfect father. God, I pray as we go about our days that not only would we celebrate um, the lives and roles of our earthly fathers, God, we would recognize that even if our fathers were absent, even if our fathers didn't live up to the standard, God, that you always will. Lord, and I pray that you would pour out your love on us. We would recognize how much love you have for us, Lord. And that would be the motivating factor for us to continue to move on, to continue to press on in whatever roles you call us to, some as fathers, some as mothers, some as wives, some as husbands, some as children, all of us as children of you. God, so please help us remember how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.